ladies and gentlemen, uh, my name is Shinya Murase, and I teach international law at Sofia University in Tokyo. Uh, in this lecture, I will speak mainly on two topics. In the first part, I'm going to describe how Japan in the 19th century assimilated the Western international law, which was totally an alien set of norms to its people. I'll speak on how the Asian countries reacted in, in the second part of my lecture to the international lawmaking exercises of the first and the second Hague Peace Conferences of 1899 and 1907. I would like to demonstrate to you the Asian perspectives on international law at the time. Well, first on the Japan's assimilation of Western international law in the 19th century. Commodore Perry of the United States came to Japan in 1853 with his fleet of black ships in the typical style of gunboat diplomacy. While Japan had maintained the seclusion policy for more than 200 years under the feudal shogunate government, Perry forced Japan to conclude the first modern treaty the following year. It was not until that time that the Japanese learned of the existence of international law. While Commodore Perry opened Japan with a show of arms, Townsend Harris, the first U.S. Consul General in Japan, gave the Japanese authorities in the field instruction on the subject of international law by invoking the law of nations repeatedly in his dealings with them. While it was primarily the dis disparity in power between Western nations and Japan that produced the subsequent unequal treaty relations, Japan's ignorance of international law and lack of diplomatic skill led to the imposition of certain burdens that might well have been avoided. The, the provisions concerning extraterritoriality, restriction on, of tariff autonomy, and unilateral most favored nation treatment were the most notable features of the unequal treaties concluded by Japan with the United States, United Kingdom, France, Russia, and 12 other Western powers. Revision of these treaties became the national goal of the new government established after the Meiji Restoration of 1868. The road to successful revision was by no means easy, and the Meiji government's painstaking efforts to attain treaty re revision were unsuccessful at least five times. Through bitter experience, However, the Japanese gradually acquired knowledge and skill in legal manipulation in order to achieve their objective. As a prerequisite to gaining full membership in the international community, Japan had to demonstrate to the world that it was a civilized nation and a law-abiding country. Thus, during the Sino-Japanese War of 1894-95, Japan carefully adhered to the international rule of war. Experts in international law accompanied the ex ex expeditionary forces and, and the fleet in order to give advice on the, on the co conduct of warfare. And this enhanced Japan's reputation as a civilized, law-abiding nation. Well, this is the background against which the Japanese Society of International Law came into being in 1897. In any event, the strong motive force of nationalism fueled the revision movement, which ultimately attained success in the form of new treaties concluded on an 
equal footing with the West, but it was only after Japan's victory in, in its war against Russia in 1904-5. Soon after their encounter with the Western powers in the middle of the 19th century, Japanese intellectuals and statesmen realized the urgent need to study the law of, the na of nations, and a number of students were hastily sent abroad for this purpose. These scholars of the first generation expected much of international law. Most of them believed that nations were actually bound by natural law, which European and American writers on international law mentioned in, in their introductory chapters of their textbooks. Combining this knowledge of Confucianism with Western notion of natural law, Japanese scholars optimistically in interpreted the law of nations as a system of universal justice and righteousness that would eventually bring equality in the family of nations. Shortly afterward, however, the Japanese began to notice the cold reality of, interna of the international community and its law. The gap between great expectations and harsh reality seems to have been the root of Japanese ambivalence toward international law, which continued for decades before World War II. Thus, for example, an idea expressed by the educator Yukichi Fukuzawa in his famous remark that 100 volumes of international law and numerous treaties of amity are not worth a single canon became a common perception among the Japanese. A song recommended for elementary school pupils in the 1880s is said to have contained these lines. You see this, these poems in, in the uh, uh, outline uh, of my lecture. It says, the British, British uh, in the West, the Russians in the North, be alert, my countrymen, the treaties they conclude cannot be trusted at heart. Even if there is law of nations, once a crisis should occur, might is the law of the jungle. Let's be prepared for it. Um, another Fukuzawa's thesis um, that Japan should follow the course of Datsa Newall, that, that is exiting from Asia and entering into Europe, was, was being given concrete expression around this time. The implication of this famous maxim was that Japan's international status depended upon the degree of westernization to be attained by extricating the country from Asia, more precisely by imitating the West, and by sacrificing neighboring Asian nations for the benefit of Japan. While Japan tried very hard to demonstrate to the world that she was a law-abiding abiding nation, adhering very strictly to, to the rules of international law. Her attitude began to change after the Russo-Japanese War of 1904 and 5. Having developed into an imperialistic power herself, Japan tended to rely more on force than on law. In the dark age of militarism from 1931 and 45 in particular, Japan audaciously dis disregarded international rules. It should be noted, however, that the law-abiding attitude during the first five decades after the op opening of Japan and the power-oriented policies of the following four decades were largely two sides of the same coin. 
From the outset, international law appeared to be a strong and sophisticated system of outside pressure that Japan could not manipulate or refuse to accept. Their early experience instilled in the Japanese people a sense of frustration and a feeling of being victimized by, by the international community of the time. Therefore, the law-abiding attitude of that period did not actually result from a readiness to commit Japan to the basic, basic values of modern international law. Rather, it was based upon patience and tolerance with a view to obtaining the status of a civilized nation as quickly as possible until Japan was admitted to the club of Western countries. Once recognized as a major power, Japan found it less necessary to, to adhere to the principles and rules of international law. The latent uh, hostility toward and the frustration with international law gra gradually became overt with the consequence that Japan began to deviate from international norms without scruple. This was an element of what was to become a tragedy for Japan, not to mention a number of Asian countries vic victimized by Japan. It also proved to be a tragedy for the Western international legal order the principle of which Japan invoked first as a defensive shield and then as an offensive weapon whenever convenient. Following the end of the World War II, Japan made a fresh start in international life, strictly adhering to the rules of international law. This was in no way a simple return to the 19th century attitude because Japan's post-war attitude toward international law has derived more from voluntary will than from inevitable circumstances. The Japanese people have been determined that uh, the mistakes of the pre-war days should never be repeated. Japan's genuine commitment to the rules of international law in the post-war period has not only been expressed in its new constitution, but has also been manifested in the actual practice of its foreign affairs. Well, one of the most important aspects of post-war Japanese foreign policy has been the country's determination to settle international disputes by peaceful means. Article 9 of the Constitution provides that the Japanese people forever renounce war as a sovereign right of the nation, and the threat or use of force as means of settling international disputes. Japan places great emphasis on the use of International Court of Justice for settling international disputes of legal, legal character. In 1954, two years before gaining UN membership, Japan became a party to the statute of the court. As a concrete manifestation of this policy, Japan joined those states that accept the compulsory jurisdiction of the court in 1958. Japan's positive attitude toward international adjudication has been demonstrated not only in, the, in theory, but also in practice often proposing to submit the disputes to the court. Well, what, what I, I would like to stress in today's lecture is the importance of learning from the past. And so uh, let us return to the period of, of the turn of the century around the years of 1899 and 1907, when the famous Hague Peace Conferences were held. So, I'll speak on the presence and non-presence of Asia in the Hague Peace Conferences. Well, the first 
Hague Peace Conference was held in 1899 under the initiative of the Russian Tsar Nicholas II, which was attended by 26 countries. The first peace conference produced several important instruments of international law, including the Convention of, on the Peaceful Settlement of International Disputes and the Convention Respecting the Laws and Customs of War on Land. The Asian countries that participated in the conference were only four, namely China, Japan, Persia, and Siam. Following Dr. Eifinger, who wrote a voluminous book on the, on the conference, I do not include Turkey as an Asian country. Well, in any event, Asian representation was very low as compared to the 53 Asian countries that are members of the UN today. Apart from, from those four countries, the rest of Asia was wholly absent. The Japanese delegates in 1899 are described by Dr. Eifinger as keenly sensible of their importance and the ensuing responsibility. And coming to The Hague, they were excellently prepared and most keen, in, most keen indeed to make a full contribution on behalf of the Asian continent. In fact, their active partic participation in the work of the conference was quite impressive, especially in the field of peaceful settlement of disputes, as I will explain later. At the second Hague Conference in 1907, 46 countries participated in the conference, including 17 countries from Latin America. It may be noted that while the first conference was organized by, by the Russian initiative, the second conference was largely the product of the American initiative led by the President Theodore Roosevelt. Asia was represented by the same four governments that, that had attended the conference in 1899. Moreover, it can be said that the contribution to the work of the conference by those four countries was markedly insignificant. Well, in this latter half of my lecture, I, I want to ex explore the reasons for this situation and focus particularly on the treatment of the Korean delegation by the conference, since, since that, that story, I, I believe, has lessons for all of us to this day. I think that this episode tells us a great deal about early 20th century aspirations for self-determination and the barriers that subjugated people faced in pursuing recognition of their national identity. I have, of course, uh, left out a good deal in this oral le lecture, but I hope that there is enough here to inspire you to read the full written account, which will be published by the Hague Academy of International Law in 2009. <coughs> First, why did Asian countries play such a minor role in 1907 conference. But to, be, to begin with, uh, China under Qin Dynasty was on the verge of collapse in 1907. China proved unable to resist aggression, first of the Western powers and then of Japan. At a time when Chinese internal affairs were in disarray, China's foreign policy was in such a state of paralysis that the Chinese representatives were not, were not able to make any positive contribution to the work of the conference. Well, the, the same might be said of 
Persia, a, a powerful but troubled empire in the West, uh, West Asian region, whose internal affairs at, at the time were going through the constitutional revolution. It may be recalled that the year 2007 is also the centennial of the Anglo-Russian Entente. And the centerpiece of that agreement was the division of Persia into spheres of influence by the two imperial powers. Well, some may wonder why Siam was selected to participate. Siam was, not, was certainly not a power at the time. Yet it was an important buffer state between the various colonial powers that were vying for influence and possessions in Southeast Asia. As an old peace-loving kingdom which had never been colonized, Siam carefully held the balance of power in the region at that time. Moreover, Siam was accredited to the, to the court of the Tsar in St. Petersburg, and close personal, personal ties existed between the Siamese royal family and the Russian imperial family. It appears at least from the record that these Asian delegations generally regarded their invitation to the conference as more symbolic than substantive. Well, Japan was emerging as a new power in Asia after its victory over Russia in the war of 1904 and 05. The outlook of Japan's second conference, however, differed markedly from what it had been at the first. In 1907, Japan showed itself to be more preoccupied with attaining recognition of its equal status with the countries of the West. In 1899, for instance, Japan was quite enthusiastic about the establishment of, of the permanent court, court of arbitration. And once it was established, the Japanese were very keen to make use of, of the permanent court of arbitration, PCA, to demonstrate their country's willingness to submit disputes to arbitration. Thus, in 1902, Japan referred to the referred the Japanese house tax case to the PCA as soon as it was established. The Japanese lawyers and officials were sure that they would win the case. Thus, for instance, Mr. Miyaoka, who acted as, a, as agent for Japan, declared in the grand gesture that should the judgment go against Japan, he would be willing to perform harakiri in the traditional samurai fashion. When the tribunal rendered its decision against Japan in May 1905, the Japanese were deeply disappointed and disillusioned. Because of their unduly high expectations, the Japanese complainants did not accept the PCA decision. Thus, at the second peace conference in 1907, Japan was eager to block the proposal for a compulsory system of arbitration. One may see here the, a sudden change of attitude on the part of the Japanese government around 1905, especially after the Russo-Japanese War. Once Japan had itself become an imperialist power, its foreign policy tended to rely more on force than, than law, as I mentioned. In any event, uh, there is little in the 1907 conference that could be described as the, as the presence of Asia. So I would rather speak of the non-presence of Asia. And in fact, the peace conference was indifferent 
perhaps even hostile to the legitimate aspirations and outcry of the Asian people, which I would like to highlight in this lecture. In so doing, I, I focus particularly on the, on the episode of three Korean envoys who came to The Hague in June 1907, demanding to be represent, represented only for the conference to refuse them. Korea was this deprived of its right of uh, diplomatic uh, representation under the Treaty of Protectorate with Japan, concluded in 1905. Emperor Kojon of Korea had taken every opportunity to send messages abroad to protest against the treaty, while the Japanese officials tried to prevent the Korean emperor from having any contacts with foreign, foreign governments. Learning about the Hague Conf Peace Conference, the emperor thought that he saw his, his chance of striking a blow for freedom. He believed that uh, despite its defeat in the, the war with Japan, Russia would not recognize Japan's arbitrary rule over Korea. He also believed that neither the United States nor Great Britain would permit Korea to die before their eyes without extending their hands to help. He appeared op optimistic that the conference would come to the rescue and liberate his, liberate his country from Japanese domination. Thus, in utmost secrecy, the Emperor Kojon arranged to send his delegates to The Hague to take part in the conference in order to denounce Japan's brutal subjugation of his country. The three Korean delegates arrived at The Hague 10 days after the opening of the conference. Uh, as you see in this picture, which is also in my uh, outline, uh, the delegates were Isan Seoul, the center, and Lee Jun, the deputy representative, and Iwi John. <coughs> well, Iwi John was only 20 years old at the time the son of a high-ranking diplomat um, and educated in Europe from, from the age of seven. Iwi Jong was said to have spoken seven languages. He thus served as spokesman of the Korean delegation. Unfortunately, Emperor Kojong's uh, op optimism bore little relation to the way that great powers really viewed Korea. In a secret agreement signed in July 1905, the United States had given Japan the assurance that it recognized Japanese rule over Korea. This assurance was given in exchange for Japan's recognition of the U.S. administration of the Philippines. Similar assurances uh, on the Korean question were given by, by Great Britain and by France. Well, Russia was also changing its policy toward Japan. By early 1907, Russia had shifted from its previous confrontational strategy to a conciliatory policy. Thus, an agreement was signed between the two countries to the effect that Russia would no longer intervene in Japanese-Korean Japanese relations. Again, this concession was made in exchange for Japan's acknowledgement of Russia's special interests in Mongolia, while imperialism was in full swing in those days. It may be noted that uh, Korea was included 
in the original list of 47 countries to be invited to the second Hague conference in the diplomatic note sent by Russia to these countries in October 1905. That is before Korea's conclusion of the protectorate treaty with Japan. In a note from Russian, Russian ambassador in Washington, D.C. to the U.S. Secretary, Secretary of State, dated 12 April 1906, it was stated that Panama had declined the invitation, that Korea had not returned the reply, and that uh, Ethiopia had accepted the invitation. Well, Panama eventually accepted the invitation and was represented at the conference at the strong insistence of the United States. Japan apparently opposed Korea's participation, stating that there should be no more new members except, except the Latin American countries. As a result of a bylaw, Ethiopia, which might have, been, have become the first African country to participate in an international peace conference, was not represented. Well, it is unclear whether the three Korean envoys knew of these developments when they arrived late for the conference in The Hague. They seemed as optimistic as Emperor Kojan. Uh, they were secret delegates when appointed by, by the emperor, but after they had checked in at the, at the hotel, they proudly put up the Korean national flag in their window to show that the activities were open and official. On the day after their arrival, they contacted Count Nelidov, uh, the, the Russian representative who served as, as president of the conference. Well, Ambassador Nelidov, Nelidov uh, refused to see them, rejecting their request to attend the conference on the ground that no delegates were, were to be accepted other than those invited by the government of the Netherlands. The Dutch foreign minister also refused to see them. He said that they could not participate in, in the conference because for the previous two years, Korea had not enjoyed diplomatic relations with foreign countries. Only the American ambassador received them in person and with sympathy, but his official res response was the same. This universal response was naturally a terrible disappointment for the Korean delegates. The reaction of the young spokesman, Iwi John, was quoted in the New York Times. Uh, I quote, Mr. Neldov's refusal to receive us was astonishing and painful, as our relations with, with Russia as well as with America are so good that we thought they could not refuse, refuse to assist us, unquote. The envoys thereafter paid visits to the various delegates uh, including the British, French, and German, to ask for help. On each occasion, they were called rebuffed. For obvious reasons, the Japanese ambassador had proba probably advised the major dele delegations in, a, in advance to ignore the Korean request. Finally, the Korean group approached a Chinese delegation, hoping that it might render assistance to, th to them as fellow Asians. This re request was also declined. Well, the only Japanese who met the three Korean delegates was a journalist named Shingoro Takaishi. Well, he later became uh, president of Mainichi newspapers and as a member of the International Olympic Committee, 
he would be the he would be instrumental in the 1960s and 70s in bringing the Oli Olympic Games to Tokyo and Sapporo. Well, in 1907, he was 29 years old, and the only reporter dispatched to The Hague from, from Japan. Mr. Takaishi seems to have been a thoughtful, open-minded person. His memoir reveals in detail how the Korean delegates spent their three weeks that summer at, at The Hague. At the request of the Japanese ambassador, he delivered a message summoning the Korean delegation to a meeting with, with the Japanese envoy. The delegates replied that they would see Mr. Takaishi because he was, he was a journalist, but that he, it was not necessary to see the officials of the Japanese government. Well, Mr. Takaishi saw the delegates almost every day, observing that they appeared to be in dear straits financially. Uh, he was nonetheless deeply impressed by, the, by their sincerity, earnest patriotism, and determination to sac sacrifice their personal interests for the sake of their country. Within a few days, it was clear that the attempt of the Korean delegates to attend the conference had been thwarted. They distributed their statement written in French to the participants of the conference and arranged for its publication in the Courier de la Conference. Uh, it stated, in essence, that Korea-Japan Protectorate Treaty of 1905 had not been duly signed by the Emperor of Korea and was therefore had no validity, and that Japan had employed armed forces in order to achieve its goal. The Korean delegates, delegates requested that the representatives of the participating, participating states should render assistance to enable them to attend the conference. There was an English journalist named William Stead was the editor of the Courier de la Conference. Feeling sympathetic toward the Korean delegates, he organized a semi-public gathering for them to make their appeal. When the plan was announced, the Japanese ambassador was furious and pressed William Stead to stop anything detrimental to happen uh, at the meeting. While Iwi John, the youngest member of the Korean delegation, was already quite popular among the journalists covering the Hague Conference. Educated in Paris and trained at the Sanseil military, military Academy, he was the son of the former Minister of Korea in St. Petersburg. He was raised in an, an aristocratic environment. His wife, Elisaveta Norken, was a daughter of a Russian aristocrat. This background explains why the conference journalists had already nicknamed him the Prince. Well, Iwi John was, was a speaker at, at this meeting held on the evening of 8 July, with William Stead presiding. Responding to the Japanese ambassador's demand, Stead, in his opening speech, put tremendous pressure on, on the 20-year-old Iwi John implying that whatever Prince Yi said would determine the fate of his country. Almost anyone in his position would, would have been terrified and shaken by such an overbearing introduction. While Yi however, remained calm, in a dignified manner, he delivered his speech entitled A Plea for Korea. He spoke eloquently in French for about an hour and vehemently attacked the Japanese, Japan's Korean policy.
Iwi Jong was straightforward, direct, and provocative. There was no, no sign of East Asian indirection or court diplomacy elegance in his speech. He spoke more like a revolutionary than, than a diplomat. Uh, the audience was composed, of mostly, uh, composed mostly of journalists who appeared deeply moved by Iwi Jong's passionate appeal. At the end of the meeting, uh, a resolution was unanimously adopted, ex expressing sympathy with the Koreans. This occasion was a high point of the Korean delegates and for the young Iwi Jong. Nevertheless, it was all that they achieved in, in The Hague. By this time, Emperor Kojin in Seoul had been severely interrog interrogated by the Japanese resident general, the Marquis Hirobumi Ito, and accused of betrayal. The emperor claimed that he was innocent of the, of the charge by arguing that he had, had no knowledge of the so-called secret envoys, who must have been imposters, he said. Asked about emperor's remark, uh, Iwi Jong replied, to a reporter for the New York Times that he hoped that world would not blame Emperor Kojun for acting under duress in re repudiating their presence at, at The Hague. And he said, I quote, to have admitted that he instructed us to represent, he represent him at The Hague would perhaps have meant his being disowned or even murdered, unquote. Tragically, the uh, deputy chief of the Korean delegation, Lee Jun, died at his hotel in, in The Hague only six, six days later in despair and indignation. The cause of his sudden death was long debated. Korean newspapers gave it sensational coverage, describing it as a suicide in protest. However, the local Dutch newspapers and the Courier de la Conference reported in fact, Lee Jun had an abscess on his cheek, which was removed by an operation causing uh, erysipelas. The suicide theory of Lee Jun's death was long supported by, by many in Korea. But after thorough examination by, by, by experts, the government of Republic of Korea pronounced in 1962 that the cause of Lee Jun's death had been uh, Erispelas. The hotel that three envoys stayed, the Hotel de Yong, is now become Ijun Peace Museum. And I would recommend that you visit there if you have a chance to, to be in The Hague. Well, Lee San Sol, the chief Korean delegate, returned to Vladivostok, Russia, where he devoted his life to the movement for Korean independence. He died in the maritime province of Russia uh, in 1917. Both Sol and Ijun are now remembered as heroes, and their graves lie in the National Cemetery in Seoul. There are a number of articles and books written about them in Korea. By contrast, there is virtually no record about the subsequent life of the young Iwi Jong despite the fact that he was the most popular of the three Korean envoys in The Hague in 1907. I believe that Iwi Jong deserves to be recognized for his contribution. Indeed, I regard his life after The Hague Conference 
as both fascinating and inspiring. After 1908, uh, Iwi John fought against Japanese forces as an officer commanding a partisan unit in Siberia. As a graduate of San Siu, uh, he appeared to be an impressive commander on, on the battlefield. At the start of the Russian Revolution in 1917, he joined the Bolsheviks and the Red Army. Perhaps his association with communism explains why so little has been written about him in Korea, a state of neglect which I believe undervalues his character and his patriotism. Just as a footnote, uh, Iwi John and his wife Elisaveta had three daughters. After a long search of his relatives, I was finally able to locate their granddaughter who lived in Moscow uh, at the age of 72. So I telephoned her from Tokyo one day in September 2007, and it was indeed a gratifying moment to listen to the most dramatic stories uh, of her family. Uh, returning to the 1907 gate-crushing incident of the three delegates in The Hague, uh, the cost of, for Korea was disastrously, disastrously high. The incident was naturally a great embarrassment to Japan. Taking advantage of the situation, the Japanese foreign minister rushed to the Korean capital on 18 July to demand the abdication of the Emperor Kojun of Korea. Coerced and intimidated, the emperor eventually agreed to resign from the throne at 2 o'clock in the morning on 19 July. A Japanese uh, foreign minister left, Korea, left the Korean capital only after he had concluded the third Korea-Japan agreement by which Korea was virtually annexed to Japan. The formal annexation came three years later in 1910. Uh, from the point of view of international law today, such acts ought undoubtedly to be judged as impermissible. I do not intend to justify them. However, I, I believe that uh, we should assess historical events on the basis of a contempor contemporaneous perspective, that is, in the context of the social and political climate and events of their day. The newspaper editorials and articles in Europe and America were generally critical of the Emperor Kojon of Korea and supportive of the Japanese policy. And they probably reflect the mood that was widespread among the leading nations at that time. Under the circumstances, the attempt of the three Korean delegates to participate in the 19 07 conference proved un unsuccessful. Their actions were even used as a basis of Japan's swift, swift annexation of Korea. But were their efforts and sacrifice really a failure? I do not think so. The delegates appealed to the world in the most dignified manner. The Hague was the last such chance for them which they tried to employ as best they could. Through the heroic acts of, the <coughs> of these delegates, the Korean people took a firm stand during the hard days of colonial rule. One might even say that Korea has become great today in large measure 
through the memory and example of such heroes have long, long been a source of pride for their people. Well, when the second Hague Conference adjourned on 18 October 1907, it was agreed that the third peace conference would be held seven, seven years later, in 1914. However, the outbreak of the First World War destroyed all opportunities for such a conference. The next peace conference was held after the war in 1919 at Versailles. It est established the League of Nations and the Permanent Court of International Justice. The Versailles Conference was thus essentially the third peace conference. At Versailles in 1919, Ho Chi Minh and his group acted in much the same way as the Korean envoys had acted in 1907, demanding representation at the conference in order to denounce the French colonization of Vietnam. So history repeats itself. Perhaps it moves forward step by step. The act of the Korean delegates has thus been a source of inspiration and encouragement for peoples fighting for freedom all over the world. The delegates are a noble example of self-sacrifice in the lofty causes of justice, honor, humanity. Indeed, they left a valuable legacy beyond time and national boundaries. In 2007, there were a number of events organized to celebrate the centennial of the 1907 conference. Significant achievement notwithstanding, the Second Hague Conference betrayed the aspirations of the Asian people, peoples, which we should not forget as such occasions of the centennial commemoration. Well, from the Asian perspective, the centennial is not something to be celebrated. At best, it should simply be commemorated. So thank you for your kind attention. <laughs>